Let's open the Word of God, please, to Matthew chapter 7. And um, we're looking at the life of Christ beyond A to Z. And last week we started a two-week mini-series within that frame, looking at some slivers, selected slivers from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, a very wise young man recently asked me, where do you find the Sermon on the Mount? And you find it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And that'll never change. The Lord's Prayer's in there too. But people quite often want to refer to that. And so that's where you find it. So you can always find it like uh, in those three chapters. Okay. Now last time we looked at uh, three different slivers of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at Matthew 7, 1 today. But let me start here. A survey cited last year in the Christian Post which is an online uh, Christian news source, polled a, uh, a survey polled a random sample of Americans and asked them to quote a Bible verse. This is a, this is a random sample. This isn't just a group of Southern Baptists or Roman Catholics. It could be anybody. Uh, I'm not sure uh, where they took the poll, but they cited this survey, and they asked Americans to cite a Bible verse. Okay, And when they did that, there were three that by far were the most cited. And we kind of have good news and bad news. Which one do you want to hear first? Let's give you the good news first. <laughs> uh, the good news is, by far, the most cited Bible verse in that particular poll was John 3.16. So that's, that's good, right? Whether they understand what it means, believe it or not, God the Father loved the world so much, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him... Cheer up, this is good news. Uh, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So that's the number one verse cited, okay? Uh, here's the bad news. You want to hear the bad news? The bad news is, number three was, God helps those who help themselves. Now that's in Second Hezekiah 3.18. Now actually that was in Poor Richard's Almanac, written by Benjamin Franklin. But you ask a generalized group of Americans cite their cite a Bible verse, any Bible verse you know, and a large percentage of them will say God helps those who help themselves. Problem with that is it contradicts Genesis, um, Genesis through Revelation, really. But I was thinking of uh, uh, Ephesians 2. For by grace, unmerited favor, God's initiation, not ours. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, so you got nothing to brag about. But the average American, many of them think... Uh, the one verse they know is God helps those who help themselves. Um, now it gets even uh, weirder, if it can be uh, said that way. Number two, guess what? You read ahead. Judge not, lest ye be judged. That was the second most cited Bible verse by a random sample, a cross-section of Americans. And I think the reason so many Americans remember that verse is they see it as a free pass, <laughs> get out of jail free card, to do whatever they want to do with no critique. Which leads us to the question we will look at this morning, what did Jesus mean by that? Judge not, lest ye be judged. So let's look at that this morning. But let's pray that we'll be teachable to the text. And then let's also pray for our troops, peace officers, and firefighters, local and international. Okay? Apply Judge not, lest ye be judged as we move to our abstract thought warmer-upper today. I just keep coming with the puns. 
Fun puns. This is to warm up your capacity for abstract thought, okay? Um, you tell me. Two egotists started a fight, and sadly, it was all about an eye for an eye. <laughs> Capital letter I. What do you call the wife of a hippie? Mississippi. I should probably stop right now while I'm ahead. I'm going to do the last one anyway. A guy with insomnia put his bed in the fireplace, and then he slept like a log. Okay, I'm trusting your capacity for abstract thought is warmed up, because as we will emphasize at the end, Jesus often says things that he knows will be easily misunderstood at first, unless you really want to think through what they actually mean. So you got to use your capacity for abstract thought in Bible study. But it's a good thing for you. It won't kill you. All right. The, Lord, the, the Lord's best-known sermon, message, presentation is called the Sermon on the Mount. He would have preached this content hundreds of times. It's genius. No big surprise. It's the greatest message ever given because it addresses, addresses two different types of uh, audience members perfectly. For unbelievers who have been told by the Pharisees and the scribes, that their best might be good enough for them to earn their way to heaven by being a really religious person. The people who were convinced that's the way it worked, Jesus totally deconstructs that conception. Okay, You can't be good enough, and it's not going to work, and I'm the Savior, and you're the Savies. That's what he does for unbelievers when they chew on this. For believers like Zach or like Lendl or, or like Betty, He's telling you what spirituality as the fruit, not the root of salvation, really looks like. It works from the inside out. And it may not be all that impressive to the human eye, but it glorifies God. Okay. Now, last time we looked at three slivers. We looked at, in the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at Matthew 5.20, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's better than the most religious people in the world can actually crank out you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And rather than teaching salvation by works, uh, that is emphasizing the impossibility. Nobody could be better than the scribes and the Pharisees at a religious level, so he deconstructs that. And a big question you got to ask yourself, and really other people, if you're trying to figure out where they come from spiritually, is who gets the credit for your salvation? And if you're thinking Jesus does a little bit and you do the rest, that's half a savior. That's a helper, not a savior. If you think by being a good Hindu and cranking a lot of good karma out, you can do it on your own. That's you getting credit for your salvation, how they define it. So, Sherry, always uh, ask yourself, what's that preacher saying or that teacher of this book saying about who gets credit for salvation? If it's anybody other than Jesus alone, they're wrong. Matthew 5.48 Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There's a radio program where a well-known official Roman Catholic spokesman says all the time, we're not saved by faith alone. We've got to believe the dogmas of the church, but we've got to earn it through the merits of the Catholic church. Uh, And you've got to be perfect to go to heaven. And some handful of saints were perfect enough to go to heaven. But don't worry, because if you're a good Catholic... Uh, you don't have to be perfect to go to heaven. You're going to have to become perfect, and you become perfect in purgatory, where your sins are purged for eons and eons. And he actually quotes this verse. Jesus said, therefore, you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The problem with that is, that's the last verse in a paragraph that says, don't do what the scribes and Pharisees say. 
love your neighbors and hate your enemies, you're supposed to even love your enemies. Loving meaning seeking their highest good, consistent with God's greatest glory. And he said, hey, think about it. God makes it rain on the evil and the good. If you only greet people who are nice to you, anybody can do that. And then that word perfect in the original doesn't mean sinlessly perfect. It means comprehensive or complete. After saying Christians shouldn't just know what we're against. They ought to see us showing grace and being willing to try to serve people who'd never serve us. Be comprehensive in your agape, and your desire to serve other people and build them up and seek their highest good, not just the people who are nice to you or the people that are friendly and, and give things to you and serve you. Then we looked at Matthew 6, 1, where Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before people. Don't stop there. That's not what he says. Beware of doing the good things you do in front of people to be noticed by them. Don't do the things you're doing as the fruit of salvation to press anybody else. If they notice, it's always nice. It's encouraging. But even if they don't notice, it doesn't matter because you're not doing it to uh, get praise from other people. You're doing it to glorify God. So we looked at those last week in this context. Today we're going to look at Matthew 7, 1. And so you're already turning there, or turned there. And let me just start where I'm going to finish. Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, doesn't mean... You can never make moral value judgments about anything or anyone in your world. It does teach that believers, Blanche Britton, Debbie McCoy, Pam Cox, Brad McCoy, should never, uh, should never make hypercritical, picky, 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 church lady picky, or hypocritical value judgments. And we should always consider ourselves and let our own issues temper the way we come across if and when we need to deal with other people's issues. Let's read uh, not just verse 1. If you only read 7-1, you're not going to understand it. Okay, That's not what he said about this. He said six verses worth of stuff, and we're going to show you the MRI of that so you can see the whole thing. But this is the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which correctly puts all that in one paragraph. Okay, We're going to break it down in a minute. So let me, let me read that uh, translation. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you won't be judged. For with the judgment you use, you will be judged. What does that mean? In other words, with the measure, picky, 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 hyper picky, you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log, the telephone pole sticking out of yours? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log sticking out of yours? Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give what's holy to dogs or trust your pearls before pigs, or they'll trample trample them with their feet and tear you to pieces. We're going to break that down and show you how that works, but let me give you a broad paraphrase. I'm not trying to say just to take take precedence over your Bible. There's kind of a rolling commentary paraphrase I did myself that I think will help you understand the whole flow and then we'll analyze it. Disciples of Jesus, I mean Angel Wiley and Julie Miller and Maxine Blaston, are not to make hypercritical or hypocritical moral judgments about others, in part because to the degree we are hyper-picky toward others now, God will critique us by that same standard in the future. 
Worse than that, it's ridiculous for us to freak out. This is my paraphrase. It's not directly from the Greek text. Um, indirectly. To freak out about minor issues in the lives of others when we ourselves are in the midst of major sin or major doctrinal spiritual error. That would be like criticizing our neighbor for running down our neighborhood because his car in his driveway is a little dusty when our car is a rusted out eyesore in the middle of our front yard. Wouldn't that be a little weird to criticize your neighbor's dusty car when you got a rusted out car in the middle of your front yard? We must deal first and primarily with our own spiritual issues before we even attempt to identify and deal with the issues of others. However, we shouldn't be naive Pollyannas here. This world's an evil place. While believers are to be spiritual salt and light, living out the gospel in the world, we should not give malicious, vicious, skeptical spiritual enemies of the gospel details about sacred truth, which they'll immediately mock and use against us in the faith. That's what it's getting at. Let's look at the MRI of this verse. Matthew 7, 1 is a shocking statement. I think it's intended to be shocking. Judge not. Don't make any moral judgments. That's what it sounds like he's saying. But let me remind you of the three keys to accurate and legitimate Bible study. Okay? You know what they are? Number one? Number two? <laughs> Number three. So good. What's the context of Matthew 7, 1? Say Matthew 7, 1 through 6. Okay? So you always have to look at everything that is being said in that context. So let's look at this spiritual MRI. What you've got is, in verses 1 through 4, and just scan it in your Bible, you've got a negative command. Don't judge hypercritically or hypocritically. Don't do that at all. It's ridiculous. Okay? So that's verses 1 through 4. Verse 5 and 6, which are part of that same pericope, when you use the fancy term, just say paragraph or passage, um, verses 5 and 6, are the corresponding positive command. First, take out the telephone pole out of your own eye, and then, when it's appropriate, you can make, hopefully, biblical value judgments uh, on other people. Uh, and there sometimes you have to make moral judgments. You've got to figure out who the dogs and the, and the pigs are in the world, right? If you're not making value judgments, you can't apply verse 6, okay? So, yeah, it breaks down like that. Negative command, just generally don't judge others hypercritically, hypocritically. He emphasizes that in verse 2, verse 3 and 4. Then he says, before you judge anybody, do one thing first, look at your own front yard. If you've got a rusted out car there, Forget about critiquing your neighbor's dusty car. Maybe what you should do is have yours towed out, towed, towed away, and then go over there and wash his car. And by the way, I don't know if I've told you this, but I am so mentally tough, I cannot be hypnotized. And I know that because I tell that to the professional hypnotist who lives next door to me every Saturday morning at 6.35 a.m. when I go over there and wash his car. I love that joke. Isn't that, isn't that a great joke? Yeah. Now here's the structure of the negative command. It's like an umbrella. He just says generally what he says to get your attention. Judge not. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean don't judge hyper picky, picky, picky church lady style. And don't be a hypocrite. Deal with your own issues first. Okay. So look at verse one. Do not judge so you will not be judged. 
We are not to judge others in the way I'm about to describe, which is hyper or hypocritically. Um, it's, it's weird the way people read their Bibles. Um, Mike, you still have that book on Thomas Jefferson handy? Is it? Is it? Okay. Uh, we were talking about a, a, a biography of Thomas Jefferson, which is about that thick. And typically, I think if you were going to read that, uh, you know, kind of read it from first to last. Now, if it's got an index about certain events you're interested in about Jefferson, you might go to the index and look at portions. But I don't think anybody in their right mind would pick a big, it's probably 400 pages of really massive work on Thomas Jefferson. And without looking at the table of contents or the index, just open it up at random and read one sentence and then have some kind of opinion, write a book, a, a book review about the book. I mean, people say you're crazy. You can't do that. We do that to the Bible all the time. Now, you don't have to start at Genesis and read all the way to Ephesians before you can study Ephesians. I'm not saying that. But think in terms of concentric circle. you got a verse. you got a paragraph. you got a unit. you got a book. You've got the New Testament, you've got the Old Testament. You've got to think about it like that. So verse 1 is like, I call it an umbrella statement. It's just a topic statement. I want to get your attention. Judge not, lest you be judged. What do you mean by that? Well, he's going to tell you, Sherry, in verse 2, he's going to tell you exactly what he means. For in the way that you judge, if you're picky, 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 you don't want to do that. Because among other things, God will be picky, picky, picky with you. For in the way you judge, you'll be judged. What does that mean? He tells you. Just keep reading. By your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. What does Jesus say back in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount there, Connor? You know the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, don't you? Look at Matthew 5, 7. He's talking about the kind of stuff disciples should have in their lives as we walk with the Lord. And one of the things he stresses is, blessed are the merciful, not the picky, 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 for they shall receive mercy. That's the general statement. Now we got a specific example of that here in Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Don't judge in the way I'm about to tell you. Or you'll be, so that you won't be judged in that similar way. For in the way you judge, you're going to be judged before God. We'll tell you what that means in a minute. By your standard of measure, it'll be measured to you. Isn't it an amazing thing? That the same Bible that says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us, also tells us that everyone will be judged according to their works. So how do you square that, Lendl? How is it that not by works of righteousness, which we have done, we're saved, but everybody is going to be judged according to their works? There's a difference between salvation and evaluation. Salvation has always been by God's grace through faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Old Testament folks believed in the promises of the coming Messiah. New Testament folks look back on the provided Messiah. Because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins, right? Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That gives you two sets of people. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on them. So you got the set of the believers, set of the unbelievers, and in those categories, everybody will be judged based on their works. You're not saved by your works, but there will be levels of commendation, just like there are different levels of commendation in the military. Different people get different kind of medals. Some, uh, as Howard Hendricks used to say at a graduation ceremony, some people graduate uh, magna cum laude. Others graduate laude how come? 
But if you got more than a C average, you graduate from Cameron after four, five, six, ten, twelve years, depending on how long it takes, right? But not everybody graduates magna cum laude. Different levels for all the graduates, right? Based on their works, based on their grades. At Dallas Seminary, the registrar used to have a little desk plate on her desk that said, salvation is by grace, graduation is by works. <laughs> Same deal for the set of unbelievers. Hitler's down here. Your average Joe Sick Pack is probably up there. Uh, God makes himself knowable to those who will respond. And look at this. You've got levels of reward for believers based on the fruit of our salvation, levels of condemnation for unbelievers based on how horrible they were. Jesus says in connection with the rapture event, I'm going to come suddenly, and I just can't wait to give Wendy Powers her rewards. Okay? Just can't wait. I got my reward for David Bearden. And David does a lot of nice stuff uh, under the radar that nobody but God and Sharon knows about. She knows everything, man. Okay? Don't try to pull anything on her. She'll let you have it, man. But that's a problem. That's not salvation. It's not a reward. Salvation is a gift. How about this levels of condemnation? I never heard that before. Well, actually, it's in the book. Uh, Jesus talking about pigs and dogs, religiously. While the people are listening to Jesus, he told his disciples, beware of the scribes, the people who are trying to teach you you can save yourself by being a good religious person, who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and everybody tells them how great they are. And chief seats in the synagogue place of honor at banquet, but they devour widows' houses. For appearance's sake, they offer long prayers. We're practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them, right? That's what they specialize in. What does Jesus say about them? Greater condemnation. So, you know, blessed are the merciful because they're going to receive mercy. Some people are so picky. I think when God evaluates you as a believer, if you're a believer for your rewards, I think he's going to say, see how picky you were here, here, and here, here, and here? Uh, let's be, get real picky with you now, you know? Uh, now, I know some people say, well, what this really means is judge not lest you be judged because if you're really critical of everybody else, they're going to be critical to you. Okay, psychologically, that's probably true. The, you know, I'm real picky about speech outlines, right? He knows that, Okay. I give them example outlines. I expect them to have full sentences, that kind of thing. I'm really picky. And they have to come up with three speech outlines over 16 weeks, you know, one page each basically. And because I'm so picky, guess what? uh, In addition to those three weeks of speeches and and exam weeks, it's four. That gives me 12 weeks, uh, 24, uh, 75-minute lectures where I've got 20 or 30 or 40 PowerPoint slides and I have handouts. And guess what? The one time I'll misspell a word, it's a scandal. <laughs> you guys, you said you could just points off because I didn't have a complete sentence here and you didn't have one here. You know, they all noticed that. So I realize that's that tendency. It's a human tendency. People are really picky on us. If we get a chance to evaluate them, we'll be picky with them. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here primarily. I mean, it's kind of a collateral truth. But he's saying, hey, for in the way you judge, you will be judged by God. When you're judged according to your works, believers and unbelievers, but especially believers here. Okay? Look at verse 3 and 4. Don't judge. Hypercritically, verse 2, or hypocritically, verses 3 and 4. Um, let's read those. 
Why? It's ridiculous for you to look at the speck, the little minor thing in your brother's eye, and don't notice the telephone pole sticking out of yours. There was uh, Paul Weirich, the Christian uh, comedian who spoke for Karis a couple weeks, a couple of years ago. Uh, I had bought his first comedy CD like 25 years ago, and I actually knew where it was when he visited. And the day after he performed at the theater, they had a pastor's uh, lunch or breakfast. I brought my 25-year-old CD, and after we had our, our breakfast, I said, hey, you remember this? He said, you got one of those? He said, I still got a bunch of those in my garage, you know, that never sold. But uh, he's a, a really cool dude and a really funny guy. He's also an excellent musician. Does a lot of his comedy playing the guitar. And uh, on that first CD, he had a song called Log Eye. James, guess what passage... Paul Weirich was talking about. I say Paul Weirich. Paul Weirich was a guy associated with the Right to Life movement a long time ago. It's Paul Aldridge. Okay, look him up. And not now. Carol, I know you're one second away from Google. Paul Aldridge is the guy I'm talking about. I don't make these up. Sometimes I get the names wrong. But what passage do you think he's talking about? Log Eye? Good, good. Very, we worked on that. Just make, now, I thought you were going to say Second Hezekiah 3.18. But, yeah, law guy, and I thought that was great, you know, uh, law guy. Now, let's look at the hypocritical issue. Why would you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye when you've got a telephone pole, a log sticking out of yours? How in the world can you even see to evaluate somebody else, minor issue, when you've got some major issue you're dealing with? Um, you hear somebody say something at work, and you find out it was kind of a white lie. They didn't have a meeting. They didn't do this. They didn't do that. It's not that big of a deal, but you get very indignant about that. And I heard he's a deacon at a church. I heard he's a Christian, all this kind of stuff. Well, meanwhile, guess what? That guy who's so indignant has embezzled like $100,000, but nobody knows. And he's got it set up so nobody will ever find out except God, you know. Uh, that's the kind of thing. For some reason, and this this applies to preachers too, for some reason, you got to get over this when you get into ministry. <laughs> our sin natures, and God doesn't take our sin nature away from us when we're regenerate, uh, are just hardwired to want to rationalize or redefine our own issues while we want to scandalize other people's. And sometimes we kind of pick and choose the people we want to really find something bad about or make a big deal about every little thing about. But for some reason, it's just, it's so easy to do that. It takes no training, no education. You have to know Greek or Hebrew to do this. And a lot of us are just prone to do this all day long, every day. And then they wonder why, Pastor, I don't have any friends. Well, obviously, it's a very unfriendly church. I mean, I mean, you you hate on everybody you inter- interact with for more than five minutes, and you wonder why I don't have any friends. Um, that kind of thing is crazy. People can't see it. And the Lord's just saying, this is ridiculous. It's literally like being upset because your neighbor's car in the driveway that doesn't leak oil is a little dusty, and his is rusted out, and it's in the front yard. But you don't see that. You know, that's just To you, that's just modern art. See, i got modern art here, but you got a dusty car. And again... Random acts of kindness. Look for things you can do for people. In fact, do it when they don't even know it's there. Okay. Um, since I, I don't like to brag on myself, but since I've got only four more chances after this one. Um, and I, know, I think James heard about it. James is the guy who told me this. i got a neighbor down the street that's kind of the unofficial neighborhood watch. He just sits and is, he's retired. Which is, I guess what I'll do. I'll sit in the front yard and just watch everybody go by all day. 
Um, yeah, that's what I did. Anyway, uh, I've got a widow who lives next door, and I've mowed her grass for a long time. And when her garbage, I take her garbage can out most of the time, if she, unless she does it, and I pull it up, you know, and rent or shine, no big deal. I'm not expecting. I just lost my reward for it too, you know. But it's worth it for the sermon illustration. But listen, the last thing I was thinking about, I'm going to try to impress Bill, who might be watching me. I didn't. I, I never did that. I did that before he moved in. Continue to do it. But one time, James was. I think it was at Bobby's house, going to do something, and Bill came out because he likes to supervise everything. It's probably what happened. And uh, a couple of days later, I, and I drove home that afternoon, and I saw James and Sean, and I think one of the boys talking to Bill, and I thought, oh, I knew she, he was picking stuff up for from Bobby for the yard sale or whatever. So there's a reason for all that, and I kind of forgot about it, put my sweats on and went to the Simmons Center. But a couple of days later, uh, it came up, and, and James said, yeah, we were talking to your neighbor there, and I said, yeah, it probably took like four hours, you know, to get through that conversation, right? Because he likes to talk, Bill does. Not James so much, but he likes to talk too. But he said, yeah, he said something nice about your pastor, Brad. He said, hey, he mows the grass, he mows the neighbor's grass, or he pulls up the garbage bin every time. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I didn't think he noticed it. And I didn't do it for that reason. And now I've lost my reward because I'm bragging about it. But random acts of kindness, rather than picking at the guy's dusty car, wait, I guess if he's gone, you can't wash his car. But sneak over there in the middle of the night, or maybe go at you know 6.45 every Saturday, let him think he hypnotized you. Now, but why don't we just do more stuff like that with no expectation of return? Do it under the radar. Just wash his car for him if that bugs you that badly. But look around for anything that might be objectionable to him because you probably have something like that, right? It's amazing stuff, isn't it? Okay, let's go from the negative command about not being hypercritical every little thing uh, to hypocritical, talking about stuff that uh, is not nearly as bad as stuff we're engaging in right now. Let's go from the negative command to the positive command. One thing I hope you remember that I've taught you is that in almost every single case where there's a negative command in Scripture, there's almost always a corresponding positive command, either in the same context, like the next verse, or somewhere else nearby. So, thou shalt not murder doesn't just mean don't physically kill people. It means show agape, even to enemies, like Jesus said. Be complete, teleos in your concern for people. Try to serve those, even those who won't serve you, rather than try to character assassinate them or kill them physically, right? And let's get the same thing here. you got a negative command. We shouldn't judge. What does that mean? Hypercritically picky, picky, picky. You can't stay married if you're married for very long if you're super hyper, hyper picky all the time. We all go through our periods. Trust me, I can get, I, I can get there. Amen, Debbie? <laughs> you know, I, I can be hyper picky and very rarely, you know. And, and uh, you know, we've got a, we got a perfect marriage because uh, her stress relief is, is going to sleep and my stress relief is being alone and reading. So when she gets stressed out, she goes to, to the bedroom and sleeps and I get my book out and read or I watch Golf Center or something like that. Uh, and also, really the thing that made our marriage work, I think, by the grace of God was I just said, look, you can make all the small decisions. I'll make all the big decisions. 46 years later, we haven't had any big decisions. <laughs> but if they do, ever come up, I'm ready. <laughs> I know you've heard it before, but you've got to laugh because I'm about to leave. So, so I'm just going to use that as long as I can. Look at the positive command. Sometimes in a fallen world, you've got to make moral judgments. In fact, you have to make them all the time. But before you do that, especially like you're the Pope or something, deal with your own self 
first, and then you'll be able to do the right thing uh, when it's appropriate. Look at verses 5 and 6. You hypocrite. Here's, this is a command. This is imperative in the Greek. This is, this is in, uh, an imperative, a command. First, take the law out of your own eye. First, deal with your own issues spiritually. And you have to be sinlessly perfect, but be dealing with them and don't be rationalizing a junked, rusted out car in your front yard as modern art. And then, when it's appropriate, when it's necessary, then you can see clearly to deal with the smaller issue or whatever the issue is in your brother's eye. Uh, and then he says, don't give, this is a command too, what's holy to dogs. Don't throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet, turn um, and tear you into pieces. Uh, before we judge, we've always got to do one thing, and that's look at ourselves first. Look critically at ourselves first before we slam dunk anybody else. Look at Romans 12, talking about looking at ourselves first. <clears throat> Romans 12, very famous passage, you know, the living sacrifice passage. Romans breaks down into a sin section, a salvation section, a sovereignty of God section, and then a service as the fruit of your salvation section, starting in chapter 12. So you're looking at the theme verse for the service portion of Romans, if I can get to Romans 12. It's way back there, isn't it? And most people, including myself, tend to read the first two verses as a unit, but really you got to factor in verse 3 too. So I'm looking at Romans 12. Let's read verses 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, in light of everything he said about sin, salvation, and God's sovereignty, I urge you, brethren, he's talking to believers, not unbelievers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as an effect, as the fruit of your salvation, a living and holy sacrifice, <clears throat> acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's one of the worst examples of bad translation. Pneumatikos is the Greek word for spiritual. The word used here is logikos. We get logic from it. It's your logical service. Uh, it's just logical for believers to live for the one who died for them. It's also spiritual, but that's not the word used. But everybody uses spiritual because the King James used it. And this is one of the few verses Christians actually know. So before they buy their Bible, they're going to read verses like John 3.16 and Romans 12. And if they don't see spiritual, they're not going to want to buy the translation. I think that's the reason. I'm not sure. I guess I should look at my own translation issues, though, before I judge other people's. <laughs> I'm just trying to teach you by bad example. Okay. But anyway, it's logical, not spiritual service of worship. Now, what does that mean on the flip side? The negative, positive, negative. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't let the culture tell you what's important. Um, uh, it looks like Kanye West is really a believer, you know, just like a month ago, saying, man, if God would just say Paul McCartney and Barack Obama and Donald Trump, just dynamically, and, and big celebrities, and then boom, we prayed that, and Kanye West got saved, apparently. <laughs> But uh, Kanye's working with Joel Osteen today, so we're going to have to help Kanye with his theology a little bit. But uh, uh, but God works in mysterious ways, you know. I could have been a rap star, too. I just chose to be here for 30 years. So just so you'll know, I, I realize I sacrificed that. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By reading the Reader's Digest, renewing your mind through the Word of God, so you may... Approve, approve, you may know, choose, is the word there, what the will of God is. And it's going to be good, acceptable, and perfect for you. For through, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, and is he talking to believers or unbelievers here? He's talking to believers. They can actually do this the wrong way? Yeah, we can actually do it the wrong way. I 
I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. You know, not to think that he's the judge, jury, and executioner. Not to think he's the one uh, self-appointed spiritual fruit inspector for the capital C slash local church, church. But to think uh, so as to have sound judgment about yourself first before you try to administer anybody else's issues as God has allotted to them a measure of faith. So that's that's kind of a parallel nobody ever draws, but I think that's an important parallel. Go back to Matthew 7. He's saying before you judge anybody, deal with your own issue first. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you've got the capacity or at least the potential to do the right thing the right way. Now, we've got to realize there are times when we've got to make moral judgments, especially when it comes uh, to people like dogs and swine. You might say, well, that's not a good way to refer to people. Well, it can be. And uh, slide over to verse 15. Of Matthew 7, look, see verse 15? One of the things the Lord's going to tell us in the uh, Sermon on the Mount is not to be influenced in our theology or our morality by false teachers, non-biblical teachers or prophets. Um, notice he says in 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. they got a beautiful smile. They're smiling. They're happy. they got a nice suit on. They seem really cool. Somebody's written them a nice message to read. They've memorized it. They've got the cue cards up there. They can read it pretty well. Beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing but are actually ravenous wolves. You've got to make a moral judgment to decide who the false prophets in the world are and who the dogs and the pigs are. Now watch this. Look at what he says here. Uh, there are times we must make moral judgments. And one of these is when people would maliciously, blasphemously use details of our conversion or our faith or the Christian faith generally, giving them ammunition to use against us and the faith. We're not duty-bound to do that. Uh, Do not give what's holy to dogs. He's obviously referring to certain types of people. Do not throw your pearls before swine. Um, Some the earliest commentators, Chrysostom, thought this meant don't let unbelievers take the Lord's Supper, and I think you should not let, to the extent you can do it, not let unbelievers take the Lord's Supper. But you know, the pearl of great price is something Jesus talks about in his parables, talking about gospel truth. Um, or they will trample them, they'll tear you up. Let me read from a British evangelical. I know James is very uh, familiar with John Stott. This is what John Stott says about those terms, dog, swine, and uh, kind of what's going on here. Now watch this. When you think of dog as a 21st century American, I mean, 95% of you have a dog at home, okay? Now, let me let, let you know something. You know, if after we're gone, for some reason, the gas company has to dig up our backyard, they're going to find a gigantic skeleton that looks like a dinosaur. It's Mo, our deceased St. Bernard, who died on Memorial Day one year, 30 years ago, when Debbie and the boys were gone. I had to bury it one afternoon on Memorial Day. And it looks like a dinosaur. It looks like maybe they're going to think I, I killed a couple of people and buried it back there. But it was, it's the dog, okay? So, But we think of dogs as companions, as good friends, okay? You know what they think about dogs in northern China? <laughs> Something to eat. You know what they still think about dogs in the Arab culture? Scavengers that would dog them as Bedouins and often had rabies and they'd bite their children and kill them. But anyway... John Stott says this, the British evangelical. The dogs Jesus has in mind here were not, and I love his way with words, the well-behaved lap dogs 
The dogs Jesus had in mind here were not the well-behaved lap dogs of an elegant home, but the wild pariah dogs, vagabonds and mongrels, which scavenged the city's, the city's rubbish dumps in the ancient world. And pigs, of course, were unclean animals under the Old Testament law. And then he says, a little further down in his discussion of this verse, So then the dogs and pigs with whom we're forbidden to share the gospel pearl with are not just any and all unbelievers. They must rather be those who have had ample opportunity to hear and receive the good news, but who have decisively rejected it. Uh, Those who by clear evidences have manifested a hardened contempt of God. Some of you won't know who I'm talking about, but uh, Donahue, there used to be a talk show called Donahue, Phil Donahue. And the longer he was on that show, it was a one-hour talk show, and it wasn't like Maury Povich where you got, you know, paternity issues. You had people talking about major issues of the day. But Donahue became so anti-Christian on evolution creation. He'd get Carl Sagan to argue for evolution, and he'd get Billy Bob Schultz, the pastor of the first uh, Baptarian fundamentalist church uh, and a graduate of Appalachian State Bible College, non-accredited, nobody's heard of it, he's got three people. You know, that would be the guy arguing on our side. And then when the guy tried to support our position, Donahue and Sagan would both smash him down. And I often thought, when I first started watching it as a young, I think I was still in college, before seminary even, I thought, man, I'd love to get on that show and actually be able to defend the faith. And then the more I watched it, and I didn't watch it every day, but I watched it often enough. This is not fair. This is not a fair fight. They get unqualified people to support us, and they don't even let them share their point of view. As soon as they say something they don't like, they stop them. You can't say that. And I'm thinking, this is doing more harm than than good. And I didn't remember this passage at that point. I probably wasn't that familiar with it. But that's that's kind of what he's talking about. you got to realize there's some situations where frontal assault is not going to work. It's only going to make it worse. So you got to just back away. You don't have to slam dunk everybody, especially those, as um, Stott said, that are just so hardened and so convinced in their unbelief they're going to use anything you say to kind of mock and defame the Christian faith. So what are we seeing here? What's Jesus saying when he says, uh, oops, wish I'd remembered that. What's he saying? He's saying, don't judge. Don't make any moral judgments under any circumstances. He can't mean that because in verse 6, he's telling you, watch out for the dogs and the, and the pigs. What he's saying is, don't judge anybody hyper-picky, picky, picky, picky critically, especially not your wife and your kids and your friends and your pastor, and don't be hypocrite. Deal with your own issues. And that doesn't mean you've got to solve them all, but it means it should temper the way you come across. You know, there but for the grace of God, I, I might be doing what you're doing kind of thing, right? So that's what's going on there. Now, and, and you find that out by looking at the context of the passage, right? But let's think about this. Broader, more broadly, Jesus often says stuff he knows will be easily misunderstood to force you to really think about it so you don't just think about it, but you move it from your head to your heart. John chapter 2. He cleanses the temple. They say, who are you to do this? You have to be the Christ to put us out of business. He says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up, knowing that the temple building is right behind him. So that's the backdrop when he says, destroy this temple. And they think he's talking about the building. We've renovated this thing for 46 years. You're going to fix it in three days? And what is John, who's writing, parenthesis, he was talking about the temple of his body. Remember? And then we remembered after the resurrection, he said that. 
He knew they'd misunderstand it first, but he wanted them to process it. You got this aging th- uh, theologian in Jerusalem. His name's Nicodemus. And he thinks he's might be good enough to earn his way to heaven, but he's not sure. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you'll never see heaven. And he says, I gotta be born again? I gotta go back into my mother's womb? How can I do that? What does Jesus say? No, I'm talking about two births. That which is born of the, uh, that which is born of the, uh, of the, of the water, that which is born of the spirit. That which is born of the water is physical, that which is born of the spirit is spiritual. What's born of the water? What happens right before the baby's born? The water breaks, right? Not water gate, water breaks. And he's talking about a second birth. You've been born of the womb, now you'd be born of the spirit. You need to, and that's where he gives you John 3.16 in that same context. And talking about Jesus calling himself son of God, John 3.16, probably the first place I should have gone. For God the Father loved the world so much he gave his unique son, the son of God, that whosoever believeth, the Greek text says, that all of the ones who believe shall not future tense perish like a fire, but have, present tense, everlasting life. John 4, Jesus talks to a woman at the well. She's been married and divorced four, five times, I think, because of adultery on her part. Now she's living with her boyfriend. And, he said, and she comes to the well at noon because that's the only time the other women won't be there. And they're not very nice to her because she her bad reputation. And he says, uh, she's getting her, the bucket down that well, Jacob's well. And he says, just ask me, I'll give you living water. And she's thinking, water? You don't have a bucket or a rope. You can't get down there. The well's deep. And he says, you know, no, I'm talking about everlasting life here. You know, he says stuff he knows is going to be misunderstood. And I think he says, judge not. Sounds like a categorical, absolute statement. And then he immediately qualifies it. Don't be hyper picky. Don't be hypocritical. Deal with your own issues first. Then when you must do it, be tempered by that. Okay. So the MRI of Matthew 7, 1 is the next five verses. Don't just read a verse, especially when it doesn't make sense. Read the whole paragraph. And then a lot of times you've got a good study Bible on the margins you've got. Uh, little verses listed there. Those are called cross-references. Check some of those out. And if not, if all else fails, talk to a pastor. Okay? <laughs> uh, again, you got a po- negative command. Don't judge hyper or fi- hypocritically. Positive command. The one thing you've got to do is temper whatever you're going to say to somebody else based on your own issues. And depending on what your issues are, maybe you shouldn't say anything at all to the person. Maybe you should deal with your own completely at that time. But... Uh, we're not to be naive Pollyannas and give everything everybody wants, especially those who are going to misuse what we're going to tell them. Okay? So, take this to heart from this passage, if I can find it in my notes. Boom. Matthew 7, 1 does not teach believers we should never make moral value judgments. It tells us how to make righteous moral value judgments. In fact, in uh, John 7, Jesus says, don't judge superficially, but judge with righteous judgment. What do you think righteous judgment is? I think it's not hypercritical. It's not hypocritical. Same thing. All lines up. So suddenly, you not only solve that problem in verse 1, but you solve a lot of other things. Now, uh, the average... Well, this was a number two-sided verse, right, Sue? John 3, 16 is one. Number three, God helps those who help themselves, which isn't a verse, right, David? And number two was, judge not lest ye be judged. Why do people like that? Because they see it as a free pass. Now, and they'll condemn you for saying you shouldn't do that, that and the other. 
But realize they're judging you when they do that, number one. But skeptics make a huge deal about this. People love this verse for wrong reasons, and it's based on their premise. The premise of skeptical theology is there's absolutely no moral absolutes. Now, you're going to hear that in the university, okay? But what's the problem with that? It's like me saying, I cannot utter a single word in the English language. Is that a sentence? Is that a sentence, Sydney? That's a, I can diagram it for you if you want me to. I mean, it's a grammatically correct sentence. I cannot utter a single word in English language. What's the problem with it? <laughs> yeah, it's in English. But it's a self-defeating... The statement itself contradicts itself, okay? There are absolutely no moral absolutes except for that one. That's a moral absolute. There are absolutes, and they're found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, the Bible cannot be understood apart from the Old Testament is preparing the world for Christ. The New Testament fully presents Jesus Christ in his first coming, and we're all waiting for the second coming. So, uh, you know, always be careful. Uh, be, it, what, tr- where angels fear to tread quite often, our tendency is we want to judge everybody all the time, all day long, especially if you work with the, work with the public or work with school employees. Talking to you, uh, not you, Lori, I'm talking to you, Phyllis. You gotta work with the public all day long, plus the crew that comes and goes at Johnny's. You gotta work with school employees all day long. Not easy. You gotta try my job sometimes. It's really a lot of fun sometimes. But, uh, you know, let, let your critical spirit, and I'm praying my sister-in-law and my wife will not, you know, stone me when I get home, cause I can be critical too, uh, be tempered by how much we've been forgiven in Christ, and the fact he's telling us here, don't be picky, 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 picky all the time on every little thing. Save it up for the big ones, right? And, um, you know, make sure that the stuff that really bugs you about people is not stuff you're indulging in or maybe something worse, so you can focus on that. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we're so thankful there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, not because we've lived a good Christian life or done anything, but because you've saved us by your grace. I pray if anyone's here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart, as your Holy Spirit has convicted them of their sin, they've broken your moral law, they cannot fix it, and they are duty-bound to owe you at the ultimate judgment, that because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And through faith alone, in Christ alone, you give the gift of everlasting life. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. It is my fault. I can't fix it, but I believe Jesus can, and I want him to. I dare to believe he died to pay for my sins and rose again. I receive him as my Savior. And now, Lord, believing that, I want to follow you as my Lord. Of course, I want to give you my life as a living sacrifice. And I want to not be hyper-picky and not be hypocritical in the way I interact with other people. Uh, forgive us for so easily uh, slandering and criticizing people all around us. It's just so easy for us to do that, even while we rationalize issues that are often much worse than our own lives, our own thought lives. Make us more merciful, um, but not let us ever be gullible about real evil in the world or not have the courage to face it head on in your time and your way. And we pray this, that Jesus would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.